Come on in. Well, good morning. Uh, okay, we left off last week. Where did we leave off? No, we we okay. Okay, so we're 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 gonna pick up at sixteen eleven. Well, you know, we'll back up a little bit, get a running start, so we kind of get. I know some of us were here last week, so we are at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. He's picked up Luke. He's got Timothy and Silas with him. And so they um, went back to Galatia to encourage the churches and all. But um, Paul's plans got changed by, by God. So we left off in chapter 16. But let's just start right there at 16.1. And uh, we'll just pick up reading right there, and then once we get to some to the new stuff, we'll uh, we'll talk about it. So what we're going to see today, I'm calling this, or here's what Arquette Hughes calls it: we're going to establish a beachhead in Europe. So the gospel is going to come to Europe. This is another one of those great big moments in history, like I talked about, like the Battle at Normandy. Well, this is kind of like that. This is. Um, this is the gospel coming to Europe. This is, um, you know, this is an important part of history. If the gospel had went another direction, then we might not be here. If the gospel had went east instead of west. But this is God superintending history. He's in charge of what happens, right? He's sovereign. So he decided Paul and him was going to go to Europe. <clears throat> and he made sure that's how it went. So this is, we're going to establish a beachhead in Europe. We're going to see the power of the gospel to change history, how it can change the culture, and it can change individual lives. This Most of this chapter is about the gospel, okay, going into Europe. We, say, we can say the gospel changed history because we're about to read about how the gospel went to Europe, and Europe became the seat of Christianity throughout the centuries to follow here. And so imagine Europe without Christianity. Can anybody, I can't imagine what it would even be like. We have no frame of reference for what that might look like. Hitler. You know, well, I mean, we're going back 2,000 years. Just think, just think if Europe, if, Christi if Paul had not went to Europe and Christianity never entered the European continent, then history would have unfolded completely different. Than the way it did, there would be no, there would be no church in Rome. There would be no, no none of that. We don't, we, we can't even no begin to imagine what might have happened if, if this hadn't happened. So this is, this is God unfolding His history as He wants it to unfold. Okay, and we know that Christianity, when it comes into a culture, it can change that culture. Our culture is a um, example of that. I mean, the Christian roots of the United States have absolutely shaped the way our culture forms throughout the life of our country. 
Um, and then we're going we're gonna to see how it can change individual lives too with some people That's what we're going to run into. And uh, we're going to see the seeds of the church at Philippi here. Anyway, so that's what we're going to, we can see, we can say the power of a gospel can change history, it can change culture, and it can change individual lives. So let's just go back to 16, get a run start at it. So we kind of have, so we kind of have in our head where we are, what's happening. Remember, this is, this is Paul, Timothy, Silas, and they're going to pick up Luke, okay? We're going to start at 16.1, Luke is not with them. It's Paul, Timothy, and Silas. So here we go. 16.1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. So he's going to pick up Timothy. He's the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. They all knew that his father was a Greek. Uh, now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So they're, they're announcing the decree of the Jerusalem council, right, about we don't have to be circumcised if you're a Gentile. You don't have to observe the law of Moses and all that. So we have a summary statement. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. They passed through the Frisian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So here we see God directing this missionary uh, team, right? And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Messiah, they, notice that pronoun there is they, third person, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we, notice that we now, it's first person, we sought to go into Macedonia. That's when Luke, so we can say Luke joined the steam at Troas right here. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them, them being the Europeans. Macedonia is a European uh, province. Okay, It's a Roman province in Europe. So that's where we left off. Now we talked about this thing about how they, the Holy Spirit forbade them to speak the word in Asia. And then when they sought to go into Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. We don't know exactly what that looks like. It could have been they just had problems getting transportation, roadblocks, bad weather, sickness. I mean, it could have been, you know, just, I mean, the Holy Spirit could have come out and just told Paul, you can't go to Asia. I'm not, uh, we don't know. Okay, it doesn't specifically say. But <clears throat> we got to remember they didn't have all the revelation we have. They didn't have the New Testament yet. In our case, what are our most, um, what's the word, credible ways to hear the voice of the Spirit? Okay, so There's different ways we can be led by the Spirit. The most probably unreliable way is through circumstances, which could be what happened here. The Spirit leads us through circumstances, Closed, doors get closed, doors get opened, 
you know, but that's uh, that's kind of subjective. You know, that's just trying to read the situations are harder. Yeah. There's so we can be led through circumstances. That's the least credible way to know what what the will is. Hey, Shane, your food? Did you get your food? Yeah. Okay. And uh, so the second way is through just leading and urging of the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we just think, man, the Lord wants me to do this. But the most credible way is through, the, through this word. This is how the Lord God speaks to us today. It's through this word. You can rest assured, this is not subjective. This is objective. The subjective word is true. They didn't have the New Testament. But, you know, somehow the Lord led them to Europe. He said, you're going to Europe. So let's pick up at 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. I think is how you say that. Samothrace, you know, the following day to Neapolis, from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. Okay, let's stop there. That's pretty straightforward. And I just want to point out that when it says we ran a straight course to Samothrace, so Samothrace is an island. When they left Troas and they arrived in Neapolis, this Samothrace is an island they stopped at. When it says they ran a straight course, that's a nautical term. That means they had the wind at their back. That means they didn't have to. A nautical term of that means they didn't have to tack into the wind. You know, if you're on a sailboat going into the wind, you got to tack. They didn't have to do that. The wind was at their back. They made this trip in two days. And we're going to see when they on the return trip coming back, it takes them like five days. So they had the help of, the, of God to get them there. All right. So they ran a straight course. The following day, they went on to Neapolis, which is a port city in the province of Macedonia. It's like the port of Philippi. And um, so they were staying in the city for a few days. All right, I got a little bit of an info dump for y'all on Philippi. I'm going to kind of set up where we are, who we're talking about, okay? Philippi was an ancient town, having been renamed in 356 B.C., by Philip II of Macedon after himself. This is uh, this is Alexander the Great's father. This Philip, Philip of Macedon. He named the city Philippi after himself. With the expansion of the Roman Empire, it became a Roman possession in 167 BC. But its greatest fame comes from the fact that it happened to be the place where the armies of Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius in the decisive battle of the Second Roman Civil War in 42 BC. So this is very recent. We're around 49 BC right here when this is taking place. So we're not even 10 years out from this battle, this big Roman Civil War battle. It was from this event that Philippi derived its character in Paul's day. So this is what this port apart. Because of, its part of, because of its part in the battle, it was awarded the status of a Roman colony. We see that in the scripture. They answered directly to the Roman emperor. Roman soldiers were encouraged to retire there, and its citizens were exempt from provincial taxes. So we talked about how 
the power of the gospel contains history. So let me just read this little one little section here. So Rome did not know it, but the flag of Christianity was unfurled in the empire this day when they arrived, when Paul arrived. And the reigning Christ was about to win many to himself. So G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, quote, How little the world knows of the divine movements. Rome had small idea that day that the vanguard of the army of its ultimate conqueror had taken possession of one of its frontal defenses. On the day that Paul hurried from Neapolis over the eight miles up to Philippi and came into the city and made arrangements for his own lodging, the flag was planted in a frontier colony of Rome, which eventually was to make necessary the lowering of her flag and the change of the world's history. So there you go. This is a big event in the life of Rome. This is the beginning of the end for Rome. Right. We know Christianity is what eventually brought Rome to its knees. Took a few hundred years, but this is the first blow, uh, the first shot, I guess you could say, in this battle. This is the beachhead. So, for next, we're going to see the God's power, the gospel's power when proclaimed. So, we're going to see the conversion of a businesswoman here. This is an individual who's about to be the first European convert. So we'll pick up at 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now, we know Paul always wants to go to the synagogue. When he, when he arrives at the city, first place he goes on the Sabbath, he heads to the synagogue to talk to the Jews. Well, apparently there's no synagogue here, okay? So according to Jewish tradition, that you need 10 male heads of household to establish a synagogue in any given place. So we can infer from this that there are not 10 male heads of household living in Philippi. We're, we're not even really told there's 10 Jews here. But tradition says if you cannot establish a synagogue with 10 male heads of household, then you will meet outdoors under the sky near a body of water, a river, or a lake, and that's where you will offer your prayers and read the, read the uh, scrolls, the Law and the Prophets. So that's what they're doing. They come to Philippi. There's no synagogue. Sabbath comes. They're headed out to, a, they call it the place of prayer. Okay. And they come upon some women sitting there. So apparently there are no Jewish men. At least they're not, they're not observing the Sabbath. But there are some women here. Uh, verse 14, a woman named Lydia. So we're going to find some things out about Lydia. She's from the city of Thyatira. She's a seller of purple fabrics and a worshiper of God. She was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So we can say this. She's from Thyatira. Now, where have we heard that word before? Thyatira. It's not mentioned in any of the, there's no epistle to the Thyatirans. But in Revelation, one of the seven churches is Thyatira. Correct. 
we're not told how the church of Thyatira gets established in scripture, but we could. This, this lady's from Thyatira. Now, she lives in Philippi, but that's not to say later she didn't go back to Thyatira and, you know, and spread the gospel there. So we know she's from Thyatira. She is a seller of purple fabrics, which means she's wealthy and successful. So in this day, only the richest of people could afford purple fabrics because purple dye was outrageously expensive. It was the you know color of kings and royalty and stuff like that. So she was she was trading with rich people, okay? Because only rich people could afford her gear, her her wares. Now they actually had to take these little crustaceans, these little shell creatures, and grind them up and somehow distill their blood, and that's how they made purple dye. It was an extremely labor-intensive process to get this purple dye. So that's why it was so expensive. And she was a worshiper of God. Now, she is a Gentile. So what does that mean? Well, she's like Cornelius was. She's, she's been, she's been pre-evangelized. She's aware of the God of Israel. She, she's heard the law and the prophets. She's seeking for salvation. God has prepared her for this divine appointment. This is, make no mistake, this is a divine appointment. God has arranged for Paul and Timothy, Silas and Luke to meet this lady, Lydia, right here. If not, we wouldn't be being told about it. So, we keep reading. She was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So not only her, but her and her household. So I'm going to say that probably the majority of those gathered by this river with her are her, it's her household, family, servants people of her household. And now notice there's no mention of a husband here, so we could pretty safely infer that she's she's a single woman. She's wealthy, she's successful, she's got many servants, and that's how that's probably who's here with her. She has influence in her house. Just like when Cornelius, you know, when Cornelius heard the gospel, he was saved in all his household. Same here with Lydia. She was saved in all her household along with her. So we, you know, we kind of think, well, I mean, what does that mean? How does all, how does our household, well, I can say this, when I came to Christ, actually Heather was first. Maybe that means she's head of our household. I don't know. But Heather was, came to faith and was baptized about a month or two before me. But shortly thereafter, our whole family was Heather, I mean, yeah, Heather, Lindsay, Scott, Zane, Riley, Raw, my whole household was was brought to faith within a very short period of time there. So it does happen. So let's talk about 15B there. <clears throat> Actually, not 15B. When it says, And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. 
So we see some things here. If anybody's been coming like a Wednesday night, Kevin's been talking about election and um, God's sovereignty and election and God's sovereignty and salvation and our responsibility to believe. Now, I think I've got it. I think I've figured this out. Y'all ready? <laughs> I think I've got it distilled down where it's understandable. It's, so here's what happens. She hears the gospel. God has sovereignly, providentially arranged for her to hear this message from Paul. He opens her heart. God, notice what it says. God opened her heart. She didn't open her own heart. God opens her heart, and then she believes, and then she's baptized. And then she immediately begins serving the Lord. Where she, she kind of enters into the ministry of hospitality. She immediately invites Paul to come live at her, stay at her house. She opens her home to these men. Okay? So here's what, here's what I'm going to say about this. God opened her heart, and she believes. Okay? This is the doctrines of salvation as we understand them as a reformed theology. Y'all ready? God, from eternity past, has sovereignly ordained whatsoever comes to pass. That means, whatsoever means everything. That includes my salvation, your salvation, all of our salvations. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign will. So, God is the one who makes us alive in Christ. He is the one who grants that we would believe and repent. We all agree on that? God is sovereign in all things, including our salvation. Fair? And we, as the creatures, are responsible for our own sin and our own unbelief. We agree on that? Is that fair? So, there it is. God is sovereign in salvation. As the creator, we as the creatures are responsible for our sin and unbelief. The end. Let's move on. Okay. So she hears. She God opens her heart. She believes. She's immediately baptized. Right there in that river, I'm sure. Her and all her household. And then she immediately be, begins serving the Lord. She shows fruit. Right there, right off the bat. She don't know Paul from Adam, but she invites these, these men to come live in her, come stay in her house. And notice, notice how she says, too, it's almost like she's asking Paul, am I really saved? She says, if you have judged me to be faithful, then come to my house and stay. She's almost saying, give me some, am I doing this right? Kind of like, you know. I just thought it was kind of funny the way she worded that. If you have judged me to be faithful. So we'll move on to 16. We're going to see uh, the power, the gospel's power over demons. We could call this uh, go straight to jail. And, you know, we can say this about Paul. Yeah, do not pass go. Go straight to jail. When Paul entered a new area, he didn't say, hey, what are the hotels like? You know, he wanted to know what are the jails like. He spent a lot of time in jail. He didn't want to know about the local hotels. He wanted to know about the local jail. So, we're going to see here the gospel's power over unclean spirits. So, 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, this is, you know, out there to meet Lydia, this place of prayer on the side of the river, a slave girl 
having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Now, we all know demons can't tell the future, right? We all agree on that. Demons are not omniscient, neither is Satan. Cannot see the future. Only God can tell the end from the beginning. He's the only one. But they are clever, and they do understand human nature. So, you know, they can make it appear as if they're giving someone their fortune. But that still happens today when you pass by these fortune-telling places. That's the spirit of divination. So what, what we got here is this poor young slave girl. She's a clairvoyant. And she's owned by basically spiritual pimps who uh, who sell her metaphysical powers for money. Because there's more than one. Because we'll see if you go down to verse 19, it says, But when her masters, plural, saw that their hope of profit had gone, they seized Paul and Silas. There's more than one that owned this girl. It's not just one person. It's multiple men own this little girl. And they're pimping her out, basically. Spiritual, spiritual pimps. And so, yeah, she's in this, in this spirit of divination. That word is referring to a python spirit. I think uh, yeah. MacArthur has a pretty good note. It says it's literally a python spirit. This expression comes from Greek mythology. Python was a snake that guarded the oracle at Delphi. And so essentially this girl was a medium in contact with demons who could supposedly predict the future. Okay, She obviously could not predict the future. But like I said, demons are very clever and they understand us very well. They, they know what makes us tick. So they can fool us pretty easily. Has God said? Yeah, has God said? Did God, did God really say marriage between one man and one woman for life? Nah, man, that's not true. Did God really say he made a male and female? Yeah. It's a spectrum. Same stuff. But this little girl, she's following them around. Well, let's see. What does it say? As we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl met us. So they met this girl. So 17. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, is that false? No. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true what she's saying here. But the place it's coming from is is bad. And so it's crazy to me that this demon inside this girl is proclaiming the absolute truth of what's happening here. These men are bond servants of the Most High God. They are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. If we look at Mark, remember in Mark when Jesus went across the sea to the Gadarenes and he met the the men in the tombs. in the tombs, what did what did that demon say? What did he call Jesus? The Son of the Most High God. Now I don't, that's the first time in the Gospels that Jesus is called the Son of God, and it's proclaimed by that demon in that man. Y'all look at that. It's Mark 5, 6. Mark 5, 6. 
It's also in Matthew, but we'll look at the one in Mark. But Jesus is never referred to as a son of God before this moment in the Gospels. So this man, they, so they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, this is Jesus, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing, gashing himself with stones. Here he is, seeing Jesus from a distance. He ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Same thing here. This this girl proclaims, These are servants of the most high God, and they are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Verse 18. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. So what we see here is Paul is exercising his authority as an apostle of Christ. Paul absolutely has authority to do this. It's not Paul's power. This is the power of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is the one with the authority, right? We all get that. Jesus has all authority, and he grants his authority to his apostles. He gives them this. This is not Paul's power. This is Jesus' power working through Paul. And this demon has no choice but to submit to Paul's authority. He has, he has no ability to, to uh, reject this. And so it came out of her that very moment. Also notice... One thing we love about Scripture, Scripture doesn't gloss over stuff for us. doesn't make everybody look perfect. Did Paul run this spirit out of this girl because he had compassion on her? No, no he was annoyed with her. He yeah, after several days of this, he just turned around and said, Get out of her. I'm tired of hearing this. Stop. Because it says he was greatly annoyed. Okay. I get annoyed with people sometimes, so... That's helpful for me to know that Paul didn't walk in perfection. You know, he was, he was, he, he could get annoyed just like I can. So I thought that was, we should mention that. God, scripture never glosses over people's foibles. Even Paul, the greatest churchman under Christ. He didn't do this because he felt compassion for this girl. He was mad at her. Should have a history of fortune telling. So if you would have done anything, other people could have been deceived because that demon did speak that word of truth. Yeah. And so. Well, let's let's. Should be deceived. Archie Hughes had a, a kind of a, a, a neat little um, take on this, I guess. And I, I agree with it. I mean, it's it makes sense what it says here. So let's see, God's, the gospel's power over demons, 
Okay, so here we go. Satan's strategy was obvious. That's what he says. To derail the gospel by infiltrating it. By forming an apparent alliance with Christ's work for his own ends, of course. Okay. He loves to distort the gospel just enough to twist it into a deadly heresy. And that is how Satan likes to work. He won't tell us blatant lies. He put just enough lie in there. Here's the truth. He'll, he'll get it just a little off so that over time you get, before you know it, you're way out here in heresy land. He's subtle. He's smart. And he's clever. He's not a dummy. And so he likes, that's what he says, he loves to distort the gospel just enough to twist it into heresy. This approach is difficult to resist. The missionary team could easily have reasoned, hey, she's telling the truth. Let's just let her speak. Uh, we, we can never get crowds like this on our own. You know, this girl's causing a ruckus. They could easily have went that way. Besides, maybe if she associates with us, she will see the light. You know, that's another justification they could have come up with to let this girl keep doing what she's doing. Whatever their initial inclinations, they did not fall for the devil's bait. Perhaps they remembered that every time a demon confirmed that Christ was the Son of God, he rebuked it every single time. He always silenced them and ordered them to leave. Now, Paul didn't walk with Christ during his earthly ministry, so neither did Timmy, neither did Silas, and neither did Luke. So, you know. Maybe. I don't know. That's what he said. But he says Satan kept the pressure on for several days. It was his first and best approach. But Paul responded decisively. He canceled even out. So this was Satan's first approach. Try to ally with the men, get in there with them, and then twist the gospel. Right? Didn't work. Didn't work. So, when her masters, plural, saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. Okay. So first of all, let's notice who got seized, Paul and Silas, not Luke and Timothy. Why is that, you think? Well, that's... Luke we, wasn't a Jew. Bingo. If you read on, <laughs> their whole charge against these people is these men are throwing our city in confusion being Jews. Luke and Timothy are not Jews. Timothy had a Jewish mother, but he had a Greek father. So we can infer from the circumstances here that they've seized Paul and Silas because they're Jews. And Timothy and Luke are not. And then they level some false charges and some racial innuendo here. That's what we got. Uh, they were not throwing their city into confusion. But they were Jews. And so we see this Jewish 
hatred is already, you know, what do we call it? Anti-Semitism is already alive and well in the world. And uh, so, yeah, they say these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews and are proclaiming custom, which is not law for us to accept or deserve being Romans. Now, that's not, you know, altogether false because the Caesar had sent out an edict saying that all Jews had to leave Rome. We'll see that a few chapters from now when we meet uh, Priscilla and Aquila. They, they, they left their home because of the edict to all Jews had to leave. So that could be why they're, they're, they're using this ploy right here to get Paul and Silas in trouble. Because they may have already heard this, that Caesar's not loving the Jews and um, we're not going to observe Jewish traditions and stuff like that. But this is Satan's new tactic. So his first tactic failed. So this is his new tactic. False charge, racial innuendo, stir up hatred among the people, try to get these men out of here. And so, 22, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Okay? Now, what dog is not barking here? What, what, do, they, what do we miss? What's, what's missing? There's no trial. No trial happens. There's no testimony given. No evidence is presented. They just take these, this racial innuendo, this false charge, and beat them with rods. Um, that is not a lash like a cat. That, 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 when they talk about rods, that's a pretty good, you know, it's a stick. Maybe not as big as a bat. I, I read two things. One said it was just a, a single rod good size, but that causes deep tissue damage, you know, or it could be a bunch of little rods tied together into a bundle. Either way, that's what we're, what we're looking at here. Not a lash of a whip. It's a, it's a beating of a large blunt object. Okay. Uh, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer, to guard them securely. An interesting thing about these magistrates, they're called lictors. And that's where we get the term taking your licks from. I had, you know, did y'all know that? That's where that comes from, these lictors. These magistrates are called lictors. So it says every Roman colony, this is a note from MacArthur, every Roman colony had two of these men serving as judges. In this case, they did not uphold Roman justice. Okay, we'll stop right there. But that's what they're called. They're called lictors. So there's no trial, and they're beaten with rods. And in Galatians, I think it's is it Galatians or Corinthians, where Paul lists all the things that's happened to him, and he says he was beaten with rods three times. This is probably one of those events right here. So basically, they beat the not out of them with many blows it says remember these ain't jews they're not under the constriction of 39 blows they, they have no such um restrictions placed on them so we don't know how many blows they took but, you know it's probably a bunch 
And they threw the men into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So here we are, straight to jail. And uh, we could say here that Paul has come full circle because remember when we first met Paul, what was he doing? He was throwing Christians into jail. Yeah. Now here he is, a Christian, being thrown into jail and being beaten for his faith. And it appears to me as if this, this uh, jailer went above and beyond what he was commanded. They didn't say throw them into the inner prison and put them in shackles. From what I gather, that deal with the shackles means their legs are spread as far apart as they can possibly go and put into these shackles strictly to make them uncomfortable. No, they can't lay down. Or if they do, they're, they lay them with their legs all spread. They can't get any comfort because their backs and their legs are just been beat, beat with rods, so they're all bruised and bloodied. And so, and he puts them into the inner prison where there's probably no light, no airflow. It's just a dark, dank hole sitting there in shackles and just agonizing pain because they were just beaten within an inch of their life, okay? So that's where we're at. So next we're going to see the gospel's power in persecution. We're going to, so we're going to, we saw the conversion of Lydia. I'm going to say this girl was converted. When Paul, it doesn't say specifically, but it doesn't say she wasn't either, but she was free from this demon. And so now we're going to see the gospel's power in the persecution here. So the conversion of the Roman jailer. And you know what? Let's stop right here. It's 1020. And uh, that's a good place to stop. It's a good stopping point. So any comments about Lydia? What happened? Anything I might have skipped over? Hazy, confusing. Any comments or questions? Observations? I think it's a good it's a good picture of the general and effectual call too. You know, Paul's Paul's either sitting there or standing there before these women. It's a group of women, and the calls going out. You know, which would be general, and then you see the effectual side of it where it has its, its full effect on Lydia, which is obviously leads to regeneration, which is what Kevin's going to preach about on Wednesday night. So, yep. so we saw it right in order there, how it happens. She hears the gospel. The Lord opens her heart. She believes the gospel. She's baptized. She steps into her ministry of hospitality. We're going to talk some more about conversion after we get through with the jailer next week. Just a kind of a um, overview of conversion in general. We didn't get there this today, but so anything else? Anybody else? Clear as mud. It's okay. Everybody clear on what happens. Okay. All right. Well, we will close with a word of prayer. Then.